Good afternoon. Welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Roger Pilon. I'm the director of Cato's Center for Constitutional Studies and your host this afternoon. We're here to uh, mark uh, the publication of a new book by Abigail Thernstrom, uh, Voting Rights and Wrongs, The Elusive Quest for Racially Fair Elections, which has just come from the AEI Press. Uh, the 1965 uh, Voting Rights Act um, brought to fruition at last the promise of the 15th Amendment, ratified nearly a century earlier, which uh, gave recently freed male slaves the right to vote. In the Jim Crow South, of course, uh, and in other places in the, in the country as well, um, <clears throat> the right was honored mostly in the breach until the passage of the 65 Act. But the story did not and does not uh, end there, uh, as we saw just a couple of weeks ago when the Supreme Court handed down the Namudno decision. In time, the act became a vehicle not simply for ensuring that minorities could vote, but for ensuring that they would be elected to office as well, where, ironically, uh, they would have less influence than they might have had <clears throat> were that transformation never to have occurred. It's a story of the transformation and its implications that this is the focus of this book. To put the book's focus in larger perspective, however, let me simply quote from the foreword by NPR and Fox News commentator Juan Williams. After noting um, that the aim of the civil rights movement uh, of the early and mid-19th century had always been integration, uh, writer, uh, Williams writes, and I'm going to quote, at no point in American history did black leaders endorse separatism that would have black politicians elected to Congress from a seat that was labeled blacks only and then consigned to some racially exclusive caucus that remained on the edge of deal makings and, deliberately, and deliberations at the heart of government. To repeat, the goal was integration, Williams says. The unstated aim was a political structure in which Americans of all colors could find common political goals and join as allies across color lines to make good things happen, end of quote. This book details uh, exquisitely how and why things went wrong under the Voting Act of 1965. Before turning things over to its author, let me note that the book's available for uh, your purchase uh, at a discount uh, after we're finished today, and I'm sure that Abby will be happy to sign it for you. Our program this afternoon uh, will run for perhaps an hour to an hour and a half. Uh, Abby will speak first about the book, and then Roger Clegg will comment uh, on it, and then we'll turn it over to you folks for questions uh, from the audience. Uh, I'll introduce Roger just before he speaks. Let me now introduce uh, Rog, uh, introduce uh, Abby, and then we will, after the program, break for lunch, and you're all welcome to join us upstairs for lunch in the atrium. Abigail Thernstrom um, is an adjunct scholar at the American uh, Enterprise Institute. Uh, she is the vice chair of the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. Uh, she also serves on the board of advisors of the U.S. Election Assistance Commission and was a member of the Massachusetts State Board of Education for 11 years. She received her Ph.D. from the Department of Government at Harvard University. Uh, she is a recipient of the prestigious 2007 Bradley Prize for Outstanding Intellectual Achievement. Um, her 1987 work, Whose Votes Count? Affirmative Action and Minority Voting Rights, from the Harvard University Press, won four awards, including the American Bar Association's Certificate of Merit. 
along with her husband, Stephen. Uh, she has also won the 2004 Peter Shaw Award, Memorial Award given by the National Association of Scholars. She is the author, uh, co-author of uh, No Excuses, Closing the Racial Gap in Learning, and America in Black and White, One Nation Indivisible. She serves on several boards, including the board of the Center for Equal Opportunity and the Institute for Justice. So would you please welcome Abigail Thernstrom. be bent down and it can go down. I've got my usual Dukakis problem of uh, not not being able to reach a microphone. Um, Roger, thank you so much and I'm honored to be at Cato which stands for so many things that I believe in and I'm honored to have uh, this full audience. Um, There are a lot of competing events in Washington, I know, and anyway, it's a beautiful day out, and it's great to see all of you. I'm old enough to remember, like yesterday, the murder of Andrew Goodman, Michael Schwerner, and James Cheney, three courageous young men who volunteered in the summer of 1964 to register black voters in Mississippi. It was dangerous work, particularly in Mississippi, the state that Martin Luther King described as sweltering in the heat of oppression. A deputy sheriff on trumped-up traffic charges had turned Goodman, Schwerner, and Cheney over to the Ku Klux Klan. Their murder along with burned churches and bombed houses, brought national attention to the cause for which they died. But the Mississippi Project itself, of which they were a part, was a total flop. The state had nearly half a million unregistered voting-age blacks. 800 volunteers worked full-time for the, in the summer of 1964, and they managed to register a mere 1,600 black voters. The problem of black disfranchisement in the Jim Crow South could only be solved with federal legislation. The passage of the 1965 Act, it was the crown jewel of civil rights legislation marked the death knell of the Jim Crow South. It was one of the great moments in the history of American democracy, and I celebrate it, although I am also a critic of what, how it evolved over time. From the outset, the Voting Rights Act involved unprecedented federal intrusion into the prerogative of southern states to set the terms of their elections. For those who take seriously, and I know all Cato fans do, for those who take seriously the Constitution's commitment to limited government, the 1965 statute and its subsequent evolution raise troubling questions. But nothing less radical 
could have destroyed the system of racial exclusion from participation in American political life. The act put southern states in effect under federal receivership with respect to the conduct of their elections. It provided for the use of federal registrars where necessary. It, uh, it banned all literacy tests known to be fraudulent in the South in what were called the covered jurisdictions. And it demanded that racially suspect jurisdictions submit all changes in the method of election to the Justice Department or the seldom used D.C. District Court for pre-approval before they went into effect. Pre-approval was called pre-clearance, as many of you will know, and all changes meant literally all, from the relocation of a polling place to new districting lines after a decennial census. And all jurisdictions meant any political unit that elected representatives, whether it's to a local school board or county council all the way up to the U.S. Congress. Section 5, the preclearance provision, was designed as a prophylactic measure, a means of stopping racist mischief before it started. All of the affected jurisdictions in 1965 were in the South. Not later, but in 1965, they were all in the South. In states and counties covered by Section 5, the burden of proving the changes in electoral procedure were not motivated by racial animus is on the jurisdiction itself. A city, for instance, that has submitted for preclearance a change in the size of its governing council has to prove a negative, an absence of discrimination and suspected discrimination is sufficient to sink a proposed change. That, oh, I'm so terribly sorry, sure. Roger, how do I push this so it's gonna be more effective? Good, thank you, and I'm terribly sorry. That should have spoken up before. Um, I was saying sufficient, suspected discrimination is sufficient to sink a proposed change. That in itself is, of course, legally extraordinary. Guilty of racism until you have proved yourself innocent. But again, at the outset, preclearance applied only to the South, where blacks had never held the most basic right of citizenship, or never since Reconstruction. When the Supreme Court reviewed the constitutionality of Section 5 in 1966, Justice Hugo Black objected. The preclearance provision, he said, by providing, and I quote here, by providing that some of the states cannot pass state laws or adopt state constitutional amendments without first being compelled to beg federal authorities to approve their policies, so distorts our constitutional structure of government as to render any distinction drawn in the Constitution between state and federal power almost meaningless. Well, Justice Black was from Alabama. He would, however, have had a persuasive point if all attempts to secure 15th Amendment rights by more orthodox means had not failed. His point, however, was constitutionally serious. 
and all but soon forgotten. In 1965, the statute was in fact constitutionally legitimate from start to finish, as the Supreme Court did hold in 1966. But Southern resistance to black enfranchisement almost immediately forced a change in the definition of enfranchisement. Mississippi, other states, had to let black voters register and vote. But they could reduce the number of likely, of likely black officeholders by changing the rules of the political game. And it was not possible to turn a blind eye to such racist maneuvers to maintain white supremacy. And in 1969, the Supreme Court expanded the definition of discriminatory voting practices to include devices like countywide voting that diluted the impact of the black vote. It was the first great turning point in the refashioning of the statute and the further radicalization of an already radical act. The new concern with the political power of black ballots in deliberately created majority white settings led directly to the federal imposition of districting maps designed to protect black candidates from white competition. And that race-based districting as a federal mandate infused the statute with racial sorting and racial stereotyping, blacks and whites assigned to district in just the right proportions to ensure the election of a maximum number of black candidates. The two groups were treated as separate nations, requiring separate political space. And here we have a second serious distortion of the constitutional order. There are, in fact, no group rights to representation in the American Constitution, as most of you know. True political equality, the end of the day, demands not group rights to representation, but a system that recognizes citizens as individuals with fluid identities, free to emphasize their racial or ethnic heritage as they wish, and to coalesce in any manner in which they may choose. Rights are individual in America and our liberty depends on that. And yet, in writing this book, I came to believe that temporary and limited, and I emphasize, emphasize both, temporary and limited race-conscious districting was essential to integrating Southern legislative bodies from school boards up the legislative ladder to Congress. The racial attitudes that had sustained the segregated South and sustained the racial exclusion of blacks from politics had not disappeared overnight. The creation of race-based districts in the region of historic disfranchisement were arguably analogous to high tariffs that helped the infant American steel industry get started. They gave the black political industry an opportunity to get on its feet before facing the full force of equal competition. In enforcing the act, though, that context of historic disfranchisement was the important precondition. 
And it should not have been assumed, it should never have been assumed, that blacks always lose races, political races, as a consequence of racial hostility. Partisan and other normal political factors defeat candidates of every color. Section 5 was included in the act as a temporary provision with an expiration date of 1970, in other words, five years. It was seen as an emergency, provi- emergency response to disfranchisement in one region of the country. But it was repeatedly renewed, and I think it did have to be renewed, but not for as long as it has been, and is now set to expire in 2031. It was also amended in ways that it extended its reach to new states and new groups in 1973 boroughs in New York City, but not the other two, New York has five boroughs, became subject to preclearance. In 1975, Texas and Arizona, scattered counties across the nation, became covered as well. These jurisdictions newly subject to the preclearance requirement were all places with no history of black disfranchisement or even Hispanic disfranchisement that was in any way comparable to that experienced by blacks in the Jim Crow South. The logic of every provision of the 1965 Act had been clear, but even by 1970, that was no longer true. A beautifully designed act was no longer beautifully designed. Hispanics should never have acquired, in my view, the extraordinary political protection that had been provided to blacks. The safe black districts that the enforcement of the act came to demand provided a privileged protection for black candidates against white competition. And it is tempting to dismiss the importance of descriptive representation, blacks representing blacks. We want a society, after all, in which voters do not choose candidates on the basis of the color of their skin. But the history of legislatures in the South in which only whites sat made the presence of blacks, in my view, both symbolically and substantively important. Racially integrated settings work to change racial attitudes. Most Southern whites had little or no experience working with blacks as equals, and they undoubtedly saw skin color as telling in terms of talent and competence. When blacks became their legislative colleagues, their presence inhibited the expression of racist sentiments. Conversations in the public arena changed. In suggesting that race-conscious districting was necessary for a number of years, I do not defend what are often called bug-splat districts, constitutionally problematic districts that have also been described by federal courts as Rorschach inkblot tests. Those districts were the product of an aggressive Justice Department that labeled districting maps as driven by intentional discrimination if the ACLU or other civil rights groups had come up with what they regarded 
as a superior plan. The Supreme Court had never given, in effect, the civil rights groups the power to determine districting maps and covered jurisdictions across the nation. And it had never signed off on the notion near and dear to civil rights groups, and therefore embraced by the Justice Department, that in a racially fair society, there would be roughly proportional representation, not only on legislative bodies, but also in places of employment, in schools, and every other corner of American life. That was the conviction that drove the creation of racially gerrymandered districts drawn to maximize black office holding, drawn to arrive at the point of rough proportionality. A belief in proportional racial representation shaped voting rights enforcement in both Republican and Democratic administrations. There is really very little difference between Intel, uh, George W. Bush administration, between uh, administrations across party lines. That belief in proportional representation rested on a profound misconception of the natural distribution of racial and ethnic groups across the residential, occupational, other aspects of the social landscape. Jews are under 2% of the American population. They hold approximately 13% of the seats in Congress, more than 22, 22.2%, if you do the math, percent on the seats of seats on the U.S. Supreme Court? Should we be concerned about a disproportionately high representation of members of one ethnic group in the corridors of power? Obviously not. The bug splat districts that the Justice Department imposed using its Section 5 preclearance powers were also the consequence of court decisions that warped another provision of the Act, Section 2, which was permanent and designed in theory to protect against racism, it too became an instrument to impose racial quotas on legislative bodies. When the Justice Department, in effect, draws districting of maps, it assumes a legislative function normally assigned to states. As a consequence of the power acquired by the department, Basic decisions about the structure of elections are made by a small number of federal bureaucrats with very limited knowledge of race and politics in particular jurisdictions. In fact, initial ass assessments of submissions are often assigned to college interns and other non-lawyers who see themselves as soldiers in the war against racism. The Justice Department's total lack of transparency compounded the problem of indifference to the functioning of democratic politics in the states. In making preclearance decisions, Justice Department attorneys and their aides substitute their judgment for that of state elected officials, many of whom by now are, are black themselves. And yet, there are no public records of that process of decision-making. It takes place behind closed doors. The department operates below the radar screen of public scrutiny. 
I have defended not egregious racial gerrymandering, not bug splat districts, but the imposition of a limited form of race-conscious districting as a temporary measure to give blacks what UCLA law professor Daniel Lowenstein has called a jump start in electoral politics. But Lowenstein makes a further important point. A jump start, he says, is one thing. But the guy who comes and charges up your car when the battery's dead, he doesn't stay there trailing behind you with the cable stuck as you drive down the freeway. He lets it go. 2009 is not 1965, and it's time to let race-driven districting go the way of jumper cables. America's better off with the increase in the number of black elected officials who gained office. I don't have any doubt about that. And that was in large part due to the deliberate drawing of majority-minority districts. But black politics has come of age, and black politicians can now protect their turf, they can fight for their interests, and they can successfully compete, even for the presidency. Most southern states now have higher black registration rates than those outside the region. Over 900 blacks hold public office in Mississippi alone. Covered and non-covered states in the South are almost indistinguishable by the measure of African-Americans elected to state legislatures. Black voters play a decisive role in the outcome of many elections. No Democrat, no Democrat candidate for the U.S. presidency since Lyndon Johnson would have become president without the non-white vote. Massive disfranchisement is ancient history as unlikely to return as segregated water fountains. Political bargaining over districting maps is integral to self-government. The process of negotiation involves a complicated weighing of numerous political objectives, the interests of parties, incumbents, candidates. It's now time to trust self-government, even in the South. Aside from the intrinsic value of trusting self-government, allowing normal political bargaining over district li districting lines has another advantage. Blacks as players are unlikely to insist on the tortured race-driven lines that raise constitutional and other concerns. They want a deal they believe will be ben politically beneficial to their constituents, and that deal will likely involve a mix of districts, some majority black, but some in which the majority of, wo of voters are white, but white Democrats. By now, those tortured race-driven districts, in fact, and Roger hinted at this, have come to carry a high cost for blacks themselves. They place a ceiling on black political aspirations. America has moved steadily if unevenly, towards racial integration. But the 1965 statute has created a black legislative class that is generally inexperienced in putting together biracial coalitions. Moreover, most black representatives have been elected from districts in which there are no political pressures to move to the center. They are isolated from mainstream politics and on the sidelines of American political life. This is not the picture envisioned 
by the framers of the 1965 statute and is not what we should want today. For instance, Representative James Clyburn is the distinguished House Majority Whip, and yet one cannot imagine him winning statewide office in South Carolina, moving up, say, to the U.S. Senate. Too few aspiring or incumbent black politicians try to run in majority white settings. Identity politics is their skill. Furthermore, those majority black districts do not mobilize black voters as advertised. They tend to depress black turnout, in in fact, due to the absence of competition. Preclearance once worked to integrate American politics. Today, it serves as a break on that political integration. And yet, in 2006, Section 5 was actually strengthened and its life extended for another quarter century to 2031, as I mentioned. In passing the amendments of 2006 with barely a dissenting voice, Republicans and Democrats alike accepted the argument, which was included in the House Judiciary Committee report and a form of it in the actual uh, statute itself, that discrimination has just become, quote-unquote, more subtle than it was in 1965. Only professional civil rights advocates and members of the U.S. Congress could possibly believe in such foolishness. The ink was barely dry on those 2006 amendments when a tiny Texas utility district challenged their constitutionality. We now know the outcome of that challenge. The Supreme Court put aside the constitutional question, went with a much narrow issue, whether such districts, which did not even, too tiny to even uh, register their own voters, were nevertheless political subdivisions eligible for relief from the burden of Section 5 preclearance. The lower court had assumed they were not. The court said, yes, they were. It was actually the decision I expected. It was, in my view, the wrong case brought at the wrong time if challenging the constitutionality of Section 5 was the goal. But in his opinion for the court, Chief Justice Roberts did voice deep doubt about the continuing constitutionality of Section 5, although for a majority of eight, he argued that the constitutional question should be postponed for the, uh, until another day. That day will surely come. In 2006, NYU law professor Richard Pildes described the Voting Rights Act, a man on the left, by the way, described the Voting Rights Act as, quote, a model from earlier decades that has become increasingly irrelevant and not designed for the voting problems of today. I agree. America has been racially transformed. We should celebrate that remarkable transformation, and we should move on. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, uh, Abby. We're now going to hear from Roger Clegg with some comments on what uh, Abby has said and written. Uh, Roger is the president and general counsel of the Center for Equal Opportunity. 
He focuses on legal issues arising from civil rights laws, including the regulatory impact on business and the problems in higher education created by affirmative action. A former Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Reagan and Bush administrations, uh, he has held the second highest positions in both the Civil Rights Division of the Justice Department and in the Environment and Natural Resources Division of that department. He's held several other positions in the Department of Justice, including Assistant to the Solicitor General, Associate Deputy Attorney General, and Acting Assistant Attorney General in the Office of Legal Policy. He's a graduate of Rice University and of the Yale Law School. Would you please welcome Roger Clegg. Thank you very much, uh, Roger, for that very nice introduction and, uh, and for inviting me to, to comment on Abby's book. Um, well, the first thing to say about Abby's book is that all of you should go out and buy a copy. Uh, in fact, buy, buy two copies in case something happens to, uh, to the copy you buy. You've got a, a, a backup uh, a plan. It's, uh, it's a wonderful book. Uh, Abby has been the person in this area for, uh, you know, for a long time and um, uh, is recognized as, uh, I think, the, you know, the nation's foremost expert in this area. Um, I believe she was cited. If you don't believe me, you can ask the Supreme Court. They've uh, you know, recognized her work over the years, and this is a, a terrific book. Um, however, it is also a very depressing book. Um, that's not Abby's fault. It's a, it's a depressing topic, you know, unfortunately. Um, you know, the book starts out in a depressing way, talking about the, the horrible discrimination that uh, took place, specifically in the context of voting uh, in large sections of the country. Uh, and then it talks about what the, um, the bureaucrats and the judges uh, and, and Congress did uh, and it ends on a pretty, pretty depressing note, too. Uh, although, as I'll, I'll say in, in, uh, in, in my bottom line, there's, there's certainly much to be thankful for and, and, and proud of about the Voting Rights Act. But nonetheless, the, uh, the gap between what the framers of the 15th Amendment wanted uh, and, and what has happened uh, in American history, uh, first of all in the Jim Crow era and, and continuing uh, uh, to this day is, is, is depressing. And so, you know, I assume a lot of you are, are libertarians uh, and, you know, therefore, you know, you'll want to make sure that when you read this book you put away your firearms and sharp instruments lest you be, uh, you know, tempted to do something rash, you know, to, to, to yourself because it's not a, it's, it's not a, it's not a pretty picture. Um, I'd asked Roger, and I, I, I think I saw that, that, that he uh, uh, acceded to this request that when you come in, people be given copies of, of the 15th Amendment um, because I, I, I think it's, it's important to sort of start out with, with that text um, as, as what was envisioned um, by, the, uh, by the framers, uh, you know, in the, in, in the wake of the, the Civil War and the, and the, um, 
the freeing of the slaves. Um, it's very short. It's 46 words long. Uh, it says, the right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. That's it. It's pretty, pretty straightforward. Then Section 2 says, the Congress shall have power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. That's also pretty straightforward. By the way, I'm, I'm, I'm reading from you know, the, the handy uh, Cato Institute um, pocket version of the, uh, of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. And I'm, it's fairly uh, faithful to the original, I should say. It, not, not only that, but I, but I see, Roger, that in, in good capitalist fashion, the Cato Institute has actually copyrighted this. So um. <laughs> Never miss an opportunity. Um, as I say, it's you know forty six words words long. Um, the Fifteenth Amendment. On the other hand, the the current version of Section Two of the Voting Rights Act and Section Five of the Voting Rights Act, which are the, the provisions the, of the Voting Rights Act that Abby focuses on in the book, and that are, are really the you know the the key provisions uh, these days, and 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 that uh, you know foster all this litigation and everything else. Uh, Section Two is two hundred nine words long. Uh, Section 5 is 660 words long. Uh, and, of course, that's not even counting, you know, the, the regulations that, uh, that the Justice Department has, has, has promulgated. Um, doesn't count, um, uh, you know, all the, all the court decisions that have piled all kinds of, of, uh, of gloss on, on, on what this fairly straightforward constitutional amendment means. And therein lies the rub. The, 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 the gloss that's been put on this really uh, is unfaithful to the 15th Amendment in, in two basic ways. Uh, it prohibits a lot that the 15th Amendment does not prohibit. And it actually uh, encourages jurisdictions to do things that violate the 15th Amendment. Uh, this is where, you know, the depressing part comes in. Uh, the most recent Supreme Court decision in the Northwest Austin case that, that, that Abby talked about really focused on um, one constitutional uh, problem that the, that the uh, Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act has, and that is that there's really no longer any rhyme or reason to the jurisdictions that are covered by Section 5. Uh, as Abby uh, ex explained, Section 5 was, uh, was put in there because there were uh, some jurisdictions, particularly in the Deep South, that were playing a, a cat-and-mouse game uh, with voting rights. And the idea was to keep them from, from doing that by requiring them to get permission, advance permission, before they made any changes with respect to voting. Well, the, you know, the trigger mechanism that was put in place then is going to remain in place you know, until you know, 2031. And there are now all kinds of anomalies between uh, and, and, and problems. There are all kinds of there are jurisdictions that uh, have more problems 
that are not covered than a lot of the jurisdictions that, that are covered. Uh, and yet, because politically it's such a touchy subject, Congress has refused to, to change that trigger mechanism. This is, I think, the part that, that most uh, offended the, um, uh, the Supreme Court, at least judging on the, on the oral argument. The problem is that you, know, you have this disparity uh, in, in which jurisdictions are covered. And the, because the, um, the act is requiring jurisdictions to get advance permission from the federal government before they do anything uh, that, that has anything to do with voting, uh, it's, it's quite intrusive uh, and uh, you know, raises these, these, these very fundamental federalism problems. But there's another problem, um, you know, with, with, the, with the act as well, you know, setting aside the, the federalism problem. Uh, and that is that it adopts a, uh, a ban on practices that have discriminatory effects uh, in the case of Section 5 or results in the case of Section 2. Uh, this is kind of like the disparate impact provisions in, that you all may be familiar with uh, under Title VII of the uh, Civil Rights Act that has to do with employment. Uh, in other words, a jurisdiction can do something that is not intended to be racially discriminatory, uh, does not discriminate on its terms on the basis of race, uh, and is uh, applied across the board to all voters, regardless of race, and yet they can still be liable under the statute. This is clearly something that is making illegal things that the Constitution itself does not make illegal. Uh, the Supreme Court has quite rightly interpreted uh, the 15th Amendment as banning uh, only intentional discrimination. Uh, when you think about it, there really is no such thing as unintentional you know, discrimination in this, uh, you know, in, this, in this context. If something is not intended to be uh, discriminatory, does not discriminate on its face, and is applied uh, across the board in a, in a non-discriminatory way, it's just not discrimination. Well, you know, so what? You might say, um, you know, what's um, uh, if this helps to get at some practices that might be discriminatory, but you know, it can't be proven. Um, what 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 problem is there? Well, there's there's two basic sets of of problems that that arise from uh, you know from this approach, and you can see it in the employment area too. You know, if you tell employers, for instance, um, that they cannot adopt selection criteria, like you know, how well you perform on a firefighter test, uh, to, you know, to give an example that's been in the news you know, lately. Um, uh, you're, you're going to you know, push them to do one of two things. Either you're going to push them to get rid of perfectly legitimate selection criteria, uh, or you're going, if, if, if they're really insisting on, on wanting to keep uh, you know, the use of a firefighter test or some other kind of, uh, you know, selection device. Um, they're going to keep the test, but they're going to overlay it with a system of racial quotas to make sure that, that they, if they do get sued, that they'll be able to defend themselves. Well, the same thing has happened in, in the voting area. By having uh, a ban on uh, effects and, and results, 
you uh, push, uh, you, uh, well, a, a lot of voting criteria um, uh, have been challenged, and some of it uh, you know, have been, been abandoned, even though they're perfectly legitimate. For instance, um, a lot of jurisdictions want to make sure that the people who vote are actually registered voters, that when you go to the polls, you're who you say you are, uh, and that you're actually a citizen of the United States. Well, uh, there's nothing wrong with that. But sometimes a policy like that can have a, a disparate impact on the basis of national origin. For instance, in Georgia, uh, which recently adopted a rule like that, a disproportionate number, number of individuals who uh, are, are, are disallowed from voting happen to be Latino and Asian. It's no, no surprise. Um, you know, a disproportionate number of Latinos and Asians in Georgia happen to be non-citizens compared to blacks and whites. Uh, yet the Justice Department, under Section 5, has blocked the, uh, the enforcement of that law. Now, this is not the first time that this kind of thing has happened. I'll give you another example. Um, most, um, most states, uh, all but two, Maine and Vermont, don't allow uh, felons, you know, prison inmates, to vote. And uh, a lot of them also, uh, a lot of states also put limitations on uh, felon voting uh, if you're still on probation or still on parole. Uh, and a few states even say that... Um, uh, the right to vote is not restored to criminals uh, uh, until there's been some positive action by the you know, executive branch to restore that right. Well, these laws have roots in ancient Greece and in ancient Rome. Uh, they, they are not intended to be discriminatory. Uh, they've been around for a long time. They are, they are applied in a, uh, a non-discriminatory way. But they do have a disparate impact, and so they've been challenged under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. Um, I think that those challenges are misguided. Um, I don't think that Section 2 applies in this situation, but it has not been definitively resolved yet, and no less a judge than Sonia Sotomayor uh, has opined that Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act should apply in this situation. So. That's, you know, a problem that we, that we now have under Section 5 and Section 2. But maybe the biggest problem that we have under Section 5 and Section 2 is the, is the, is the problem that, that Abby, uh, you know, focused on uh, and focuses on in her, in her book and also in her remarks today. And that is that Section 5 and Section 2 are now used, I think they're principal use, it's fair to say, now. Uh, is to promote the racial segregation of voting districts through racial gerrymandering. You know, that is the principal use these days of Section 2 and Section 5. This is not only something that is uh, not required by the 15th Amendment. This is something that is flatly at odds with, uh, with the 15th Amendment, uh, certainly with the ideals of the 15th Amendment, and also with the ideals of the, uh, of the original Voting Rights Act. Um, 
Roger, in, in, his, in his, his very good introduction, quoted um, uh, Juan Williams, who you know wrote the introduction to, to Abby's book, as saying that you know this was really an act that was about integration. You know, the whole civil rights movement was about integration, and yet we now have a civil federal civil rights statute that is not being used uh, to foster integration, but to foster segregation. All right. Well, so this is this is why you know, unfortunately, you know, this is this is depressing. Um, the one place where I depart from Abby, uh, I, I think it's fair to say, is that uh, you know, she uh, thinks that the um, you know under the historical circumstances at the time, uh, uh, you know, a little bit of racial segregation of, of voting districts was uh, you know necessary medicine uh, in, in order to. Um, uh, Get the you know black political voters and black uh, you know politicians um, uh, you know up and running. Um, I'm not sure that that's true, um, but certainly uh, it, it, it is true that once you start down this road, it's very hard to turn back. It's very hard to get statutes like this unpassed. Uh, you know, once you've started you know down the road, and so you know the question is, should we have started down the road? I, I think the answer is no, but that's the I think the main point of disagreement between between Abby and me. Well, let me um, let me let me conclude my remarks with um, uh, you know some good news. The you know the good news is that uh, the main thing that the framers of the Fifteenth Amendment wanted to make sure didn't happen uh, was racial discrimination uh, in voting. Uh, you know, against, uh, you know, African-Americans, that is, African-Americans not being allowed to vote. Um, for a long time, unfortunately, that happened. That doesn't happen anymore. Um, you know, there, there will be scattered instances of some people always being, you know, intimidated um, uh, in their voting rights. Sometimes those people will be black. Sometimes those people will be white, as we've, you know, recently seen with the, the Black Panther incident in Philadelphia. Um, but it's, this is no longer a systematic problem in the United States. And so we can, we can all be happy about that. Um, you know, the bad news is, though, that we have on the books a statute that has a lot of nasty side effects, and it's going to be, I think, very difficult to get rid of it. Um, since I am, you know, talking uh, at the Cato Institute, um, uh, let me give just a, uh, a brief uh, sketch on, you know, how I think you know, libertarians should um, – uh, or you know might think might think about this issue, and you know Roger can correct me if I'm if I'm wrong on this. Um, I mean I'm a, I'm I would describe myself as a conservative with a with a strong libertarian streak. Um, the Fifteenth Amendment is about government discrimination. Uh, there's really no no issue these days with, um, you know, with, with, with private discrimination. So you don't get into this problem uh, that you frequently have where a federal statute prohibits both public and private discrimination, and then libertarians have to wrestle with the problem of, well, you know, should we be telling private actors what they should do at all? This is really uh, a statute in an area about government discrimination. And I think that, you know, libertarians are opposed to the government doing all kinds of things, and one of them includes racial discrimination, particularly in something as fundamental as voting. So, you know, that part of the question is fairly, uh, you know, is fairly easy. But, of course, the problem uh, is, well, who should we have 
uh, enforcing, uh, you know, this, 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 this guarantee. And I think that, um, you know, normally, um, you know, there's a principle of subsidiarity that, that libertarians like, which is that, um, you know, they're, they're more comfortable having state and local governments, uh, you know, do things than, than, than the central government. On the other hand, I think in this area in particular, given, you know, the historical backdrop, um, there's, you know, a real problem with, you know, to borrow a phrase from Clint Bullock, uh, with, with grassroots tyranny. Uh, or, uh, you know, to put it in, in, in Madisonian terms, you know, this, uh, uh, there, there, there's a lot to be said for uh, having the federal government protect us uh, from the abuses by, uh, by state governments, um, you know, as he described in, in Federalist 10. Um, trouble is, though, that, you know, you give this power to the federal government, they're not uh, immune to abusing it as well. And unfortunately, you know, that is, is, is what has happened. Uh, I think as a result, um, you know, libertarians should, you know, should join with conservatives. Um, first of all, in, in a, a political pressure to try to get Congress to undo uh, some of these nasty problems that they've created uh, with Section 5 and Section 2. Uh, and also to uh, continue to litigate this issue. Um, uh, this, these are statutes that clearly go beyond uh, Congress's enumerated powers and, and therefore I think are unconstitutional, and we should push uh, lawsuits that, that try to get the courts to, uh, to make that statement. Thanks very much. All right, Abby is going to take a couple of minutes to respond, and then we'll open it up to questions from you folks. Um, yeah, and I promise to do this very quickly. On the question of intent and effect, it is very important to note that in the original act, Section 5 did have both words, um, discriminatory purpose and effect. On the other hand, they were synonymous. That is, it was possible in the Deep South when you had the effect they were talking about, which was black disfranchisement, blacks unable to, ca to register and cast ballots, you knew that that was intentional. And the problem is not with the original language, which I think the framers rightly saw, I rightly saw the two terms as one and the same. The problem was uh, what happened later when the two terms got separated by the fact that Mississippi and other states were embarked on action which had an unacceptable effect. And so... You know, and that starts us down the down the road with the, with um, with the problem of it, of exactly what the definition of effect means and um, standing on its own, which it was not at the outset. Um, and section two as well. It's got it's a results test, but the language of section two. And by the way, one of the things we did in the book was to put. Um, large excerpts from the act, the relevant excerpts in the back of the book so that, um, you know, you can actually stare at, at the um, statutory language. But Section 2, at the time, it was, it, it was originally just a preamble to the act. It was changed in 82. 
the promise of the civil rights community was that it the provision would only allow courts with the burden of proof on on plaintiffs unlike section 5 would allow courts to strike down methods of voting that were driven by racism and there was a there was absolute promise by witnesses from the civil rights community it was not going to end up as an instrument for proportional racial and ethnic representation which of course is what they didn't mean it at the time, and they soon had a free hand um, to um, encourage the Justice Department to use the standard of proportionality, and that is indeed what happened. Um, the Roger referred to um, segregated districts. That's a term that was used by Justice Sandra Day O'Connor in 1993 in, a, in a, the Shaw decision, start of a series of decisions um, looking at the constitutionality of all this racial gerrymandering. Those, that line of decisions just petered out by the end of the 1990s. It's gone. And so that whole concern which should have been sustained with with segregation, just disappeared. Um, And I agree with Roger that once you start down the road, it is hard to stop. But had Section 2, had Section 5 not been continually renewed, there would not have been the same problem. And had Section 2 not been distorted in the way that it was, and the court has the Supreme Court has recognized that distortion in a couple of cases. It's just, um, uh, I mean, one of the interesting things about the Voting Rights Act is that lower courts and the Justice Department both put their fingers in their ears, and when the when Supreme Court speaks, so you know the court is speaking to itself. How many divisions does the Supreme Court have? Um, and I want to say. Um, well, two other small things. One, in terms of private action and whether voting rights ever involved, voting rights act ever involved private action. Well, it did indirectly in that it was private actors in the South. It was not simply the fraudulent literacy tests. It was not simply the racist registrars, who of course were public officials, but it was also private citizens who owned shops, who were employers, who basically said to black voters, you try to register and vote and you will not shop in my shop, you will not work in my um, place of employment. Um, That was extremely, an extremely important aspect of the disfranchisement, the action of private actors. Uh, to keep blacks from the polls. Oh, I was talking really more about you know today. Yeah, today absolutely. Whether there's a, you know, whether there's a you know a libertarian objection to right. No, yeah, okay. Today, absolutely. Um, but it is important to note. It seems to me that the Voting Rights Act was indirectly going after private actors. Now, Curtis Gans, who knows a lot about American politics and polling and things, argues to me that in the rural South today, in pockets of the rural South, you still have classic uh, Southern racism and uh, what he would call disfranchisement. I can't argue with him. He knows that area better than I do. I don't know the rural South. 
maybe, but certainly this is a story peripheral to the main story. Anyway, that's the beginning and end of my response. Okay, thank you, Abby. All right, now let's uh, open up the questions. If you would wait for the microphone to get to you, please, then identify yourself in any affiliation you may have before you ask your question. Uh, the gentleman right over here. Hi, uh, my name is Charles McCain. I'm actually a student at Rice University. Oh, great. Very good. Um, you both seem to imply that the goals of the civil rights movement have been achieved and that we should uh, move on, in your words. If you do agree with this statement, what should the, financial, uh, what should the federal government do or rather not do? And is it just Section 5 that should be rescinded, or should the government halt all assistance to the civil rights movement? Roger, you, st- you start. Well, um, I think that... The, the aims of the civil rights movement have, uh, you know, have been achieved. But that does not mean that uh, there's no longer any discrimination. Um, you know, there will always be racial discrimination uh, as long as there are individuals who are racist. And there will always be individuals who are racist of all, of all colors. Um, so the fact that the... Um, Civil rights movement has achieved in its in its uh, goal of of uh, you know deinstitutionalizing um, segregation, uh, deinstitutionalizing racial discrimination, um, making it um, uh, socially unacceptable, you know, to be a racist, doesn't mean that we should repeal all the civil rights laws. Um, you know, I'm, I, I, I think that the, uh, you know, the 14th Amendment and the 15th Amendment and the 13th Amendment should be, you know, left in place, um, uh, along with um, large chunks of the uh, federal statutes and state statutes that were, uh, that were, that were passed to uh, enforce those provisions. Um, not only in the, in the public sector, and this is where I it may differ from Roger, but I think also in the uh, in the private sector as well. Um, however, I think it was always a bad idea to uh, depart from the uh, the ideal of color blindness and try to achieve um, uh, racial proportionality through quotas, uh, affirmative action, racial preferences, things like that. Um, I don't like the disparate impact approach uh, to in, uh, enforcing civil rights guarantees, as, as I discussed in my remarks. Uh, I think that those laws should be changed. Um, but I think that they were always a bad idea. Uh, so I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that, well, gee, uh, you know, we've achieved nirvana and therefore um, you know, we should um, you know, get rid of all the civil rights laws. I think that... You know, uh, it's, it's fine to continue to prohibit discrimination, but that is all and only what the civil rights law should have been about in the first place. Um, you know, most of the Voting Rights Act is permanent. I didn't talk about the parts of the Voting Rights Act that should just stay in place. Now, unfortunately, Section 2 is permanent. If the, if, if the Supreme Court would read that provision properly, um, 
we would be rescued from uh, the abuses that have uh, judicial and Justice Department abuses that have occurred under it. But the permanent parts of the Voting Rights Act are just pure enforcement of the 15th Amendment. They're fine. Um, you know, it is interesting. It, it, you do raise a kind of larger question here that interests me a lot. I was on the radio this morning with on a black-run program from North Carolina. And the main question that the host wanted to talk about was why doesn't President Obama address himself to black issues? Why does he neglect American blacks? Why doesn't he care about American blacks? In other words, I mean, the starting assumption was we're still a country... um, uh, you know, up to our necks in racist muck. And President Obama seems to be talking to whites and not to blacks. And I said, well, wait a minute. He is addressing issues near and dear to the black community, I would hope, education, health, jobs, um, national security, um, and so forth. Whether you think he's doing them well or badly, that's another question. But I think blacks are Americans, and and, and these are issues that are, uh, and some of them are, like education, are particularly pertinent uh, to blacks. That answer just went over his head. He wants more effort and Obama to lead it to move against ongoing discrimination in America. And I, you know, I think it's worth keeping in mind as you ask such a question. There are, (laughs) we are still dealing with a culture in the black community and the civil rights community that believes America is still racist and aggressive action is needed. Next question. This uh, lady right here. Hi, I'm Cynthia Butler. I'm an attorney. I'm a civil rights attorney. And um, I'm, I'm sort of shocked they let me in the door, actually. But I agree. I'm, with, what did you just say? I'm sorry. I'm shocked they actually let me in the door because I agreed with probably 2% of what Mr. Clegg said. Um, and, we and let all being, kinds in the door. And that being that the civil right, that, 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 you know. Is it too late to have her thrown out? Or? No. <laughs> I guess. There goes my free lunch. I was, it, was, it, was it 4% for me? I, I have to say, I have to say that, that I've never been more impressed of the fact that there is deep fundamental racism that still exists in the culture through this whole Michael Jackson fiasco. But aside from what the culture, the pop culture is telling us right now, it's obvious that in the election, I mean, I, I litigated in Ohio after Kerry's election. And I can tell you there is profound, systematic, ongoing suppression in, in trying to suppress minority votes that are deemed democratic um, as, a, as a policy um, and that was widely litigated. Thousands and thousands of pages of evidence were put in the Ohio Supreme Court. It's beyond contention that there is massive, massive suppression efforts that are undergone every major national election. It is not a myth. It is not over. It's not some, you know, yesterday it's all fixed now. Nonsense. Nonsense. Absolute just not now, of course, Ohio is not covered by Section 5 of the voting side. So the only thing I agreed with was that, that the states that it speaks to are, are perhaps a little 
um, you know, need to be redressed because I believe that there are many more states that ought to be covered under Section 5, um, including Ohio, including possibly, you know, at times one might even think Pennsylvania. Um, but I think, I think that um, – I, I mean, I didn't want to make a speech. I wanted to actually ask a question, um, and that was – where where are you getting your statistical data that dis, that disparate impact um, discrimination is not valid? Because I mean, who is dumb enough besides the KKK to say we're doing this because we're discriminating, or we're doing this because we're racist, or we, we're going to do this against you because you're black, or we're you know, or a female, or Hispanic, or anything, or Catholic? Okay, nobody's stupid enough to come outright and, and express from an evidentiary valid perspective enough so that you would be able to prove that the intention was racist from an animus criteria, su- such that the only thing you have to rely on is this, is the is the disparate impact. And I'll just give you the brief example that was given to me in, in another, um, uh, you know, the, a- the ALJ, American J- Law, Amer- whatever that Nan Aaron's group s- discussed. And that was when um, in Texas, and this, I think this was litigated. This was Could you speak into the microphone? In Texas, um, Catholics tend to revere the Blessed Mother, and there's this holiday, the Feast of Our Lady of Guadalupe, okay? And that's a very big deal for Catholics who are of a Hispanic background in Texas, and they have celebrations and partying all day and cooking all day and parades and all this. So so the town in Texas wanted to, um, you know, the good old white boys down there didn't want any more wetbacks in their local legislature. So they scheduled the election day on Our Lady of Guadalupe Feast Day. Now, that nobody came out and was stupid enough to say, because we don't want any wetbacks or Catholics or anybody. But, but obviously, the intent can be interpreted. It can be backdoor interpreted through the effect, because the effect was that anybody who was going to celebrate on that day wasn't making it to the polls, and, and they had no early voting. Okay, So, you know, these things, they, they, they are calculated, they're ongoing. We're not in this, this, you know, this paradise where white people are all just really good and everybody loves everybody. That's crap. I mean, it, we still have fundamental issues of serious racism. And I'm a white person. I'm Irish, Catholic, German background. Okay, not a, you know, not a black person in my heritage that I know of. Okay, and I see it. And if I see it, why don't you? Well, you know, two, you know, a couple of things. You know, first of all, um, I did not say, and in fact, I think I made it quite explicit that I do not believe that uh, discrimination is a thing of the past. Discrimination still exists; uh, it will always exist. Uh, so that's the first point. Second point: I think that we do have wildly different views of how much discrimination there is in the United States uh, and how, you know, systematic, you know, it is. Um, And, you know, we may just have to agree to disagree about that. Uh, Number three, in terms of what you have to show in a lawsuit, um, I don't have any problem with proving discrimination through uh, statistics or through circumstantial evidence or through things other than a smoking gun memorandum from, you know, one member of the Ku Klux Klan to the other saying that we're doing this for discriminatory reasons. You know, if, if a jurisdiction in Texas for years and years and years 
um, you know, has held an election on a particular day, and then all of a sudden, one time, you know, they, 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 they decide that they're going to change the day, and it just so happens to be uh, to a date that uh, is, is going to uh, disenfranchise people because of national origin. Uh, uh, that's fine, you know, you go ahead and you know, make, make your case. But what I have a problem with is saying that it doesn't make any difference whether the action was taken uh, uh, discriminatorily or not. And that is what the disparate impact approach is. It does not matter. Uh, it is not an element of proof. It is not something that a court has to find that there was discrimination. Uh, as long as there is a disproportionate result, uh, that's all you need to show. And that is simply a powerful engine toward racial quotas and toward, uh, all and toward invalidating all kinds of perfectly legitimate selection criteria. Yeah, let me say a couple of things on this as well. Um, Sorry, I'm switching glasses around here because I can't see you if I wear one pair of glasses and can't see my paper if I wear another. Um, nobody believes there's no discrimination and everything is squeaky clean and everyone loves each other and we're just one big happy family in America. I mean, I, you know, I don't know who you're talking about, but not either of us and not anybody I've ever encountered, not anybody I've ever read. Um uh, the and the but the question of impact in my mind should be the beginning of the conversation, not the end. That is, statistical disparities in and of themselves don't or very seldom tell you a story. They are an indication that something may be going on. You then want to know what it is. Now, as far as what happened in Ohio. Um, you're much more familiar with that than I am. I am very familiar with the charges in 2000 in Florida of racial discrimination, and it, it, they just didn't wash out. And they were mostly in Democratic-run, entirely actually, in Democratic-run counties. And, um, it, I mean, when you looked at the individual charges, they just collapsed in terms of of discrimination. Um, but you tell me what it is you found, you know, without, we can't obviously hold up the whole audience for a long time here, but what you found in Ohio that, and what the remedy was, the remedy wasn't the Voting Rights Act, clearly. Um, and if courts didn't find the discrimination and didn't provide a remedy for you, then what was going on? Are the courts racist too? Uh, for the yeah, no. I, I, for the benefit of those who are not conversant with this technical talk here, um, Abby is making the point that discriminatory outcome does not necessarily mean discriminatory intent. And that's all to the good. Roger was making the point in response to the question that um, discriminatory outcome may be a sign of discriminatory intent because there are people who will discriminate in subtle ways that will be difficult to prove. And that's why we've gone to the disparate impact method of proving discriminatory intent. Then I want to put to Roger this question. 
the way you get out from under a charge of discriminatory uh, outcome or disparate impact, as it's called, is that the burden shifts to the employer or to the uh, district, uh, the election district, as the case may be, to show that the test or selection procedure in employment context was uh, validated, that it was necessary for the business, and that there was no other test available that uh, the employer refused to use. Are you opposed to the shifting of the burden once the plaintiff shows discriminatory impact? Or would you keep the burden on the person showing discriminatory impact to show that it was indeed discriminatory intent by virtue of the test being um, not meeting those criteria that uh, the law from Duke Power onward has required to be met? Well, um, you know, this gets you know, pretty technical pretty quickly. But, um, That's why I uh, asked it, because it is complex. I, I, I think that, you know, the right approach in, uh, in any kind of discrimination case is uh, that the burden of proof uh, should remain, as in any civil litigation, with the plaintiff, you know, throughout the litigation. Now, at different stages during a lawsuit, the burden of going forward with evidence may shift. But ultimately... Uh, I think that in any kind of discrimination suit, the burden of proof should always remain on the uh, plaintiff to prove that uh, the, the, the challenge action was, you know, took place because of, uh, because of race. But did you object to the burden shifting of Section 5 where the burden of proof is on the defendant well, jurisdiction to prove an absence of racism. Let, let me make a uh, yes, I would. Um, but more importantly, it's it's important. And Roger, this may be one. I don't know if you if you if you misspoke or not. But um, the problem with the um, statutory language in Title Seven. You know the, the disparate impact language in Title Seven. It's employment the, the law. E- effect uh, language in Section Five of the Voting Rights Act, and the results language in Section Two of the Voting Rights Act is that uh, you are no longer required at any point in the lawsuit, as part of the prima facie case or as part of the ultimate proof, to show discrimination. All you have to show is disproportionate results. Um, if an employer comes in, uh, you know, in, in the uh, employment context and can prove that, you know, the reason that he has adopted this test is, uh, you know, for, that, that it had nothing to do with, uh, with, with discrimination, he still loses. If uh, the uh, plaintiff can show that it has a disproportionate result, uh, and uh, uh, unless he can prove through, you know, some degree of, of proof, which can be very high, not only that he didn't have discriminatory, you know, motive, that's, that's beside the point. You know, he has to show validation. He has to show job-relatedness and so forth. Um, so he can lose that lawsuit uh, even if there is no question that, race had nothing to do with the reason that he was requiring firefighters to take this examination. That's the problem with the disparate impact approach. And the same thing is true in the voting context. 
Um, it doesn't make any difference whether, you know, a, a state can prove, um, you know, w- w- without, you know, any, um, uh, you know, contrary evidence that the reason they are not letting prison inmates vote is because they think it would create security problems or, be, you know, for, for any number of reasons why they may think it's a bad idea to let prison inmates vote. Um, as long as there is a disproportionate result, that is, as long as the prison population does not mirror the general population, um, the, um, uh, that's, that's all that the um, plaintiff has to show under Section 5 or under Section 2. And it's very unclear whether that prima facie case is going to be rebuttable at all because Congress has never spelled out what the rebuttal stage in a Section 2 or Section 5 case is. Of course, we haven't gotten to the remedies problem, too, which is what Scalia raised in, uh, in the um, uh, Ritchie case. Ritchie case. Yeah, that uh, the, the remedy will require precisely what is forbidden. Well, and by the way, anybody, and Roger, I'm kind of including you here, who thinks Congress may act to remedy some of these problems, I, I dream in a way. Oh, yeah. I mean, there is a political problem, without question. Yes. Let's take one more question right here. Just wait for the microphone to come down. I mean, I, I, while he's getting the microphone, I, I mean, Roger, I would say the, the burden-shifting nature of Section 5 in 1965, temporary provisions supposed to expire in 1970, uh, that burden-shifting was, was essential to making to the effectiveness of preclearance. But anyway... You can do that with, with, with an intent test, you know, of course, but I don't, I don't think that... Um, I, I would not have the effects language... I would not put the effects language in there to start out with. Introduce yourself, please. And 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 it, got, and it doesn't seem to be loud enough. To, to buy your theory, I have. Well, to buy your theory, you have to. Whose theory? Which one? Mine. I have to assume that today the American society is such that whenever people make any type of decision, the color of your skin is completely irrelevant. No, of course the color of your skin is not completely irrelevant in the decisions people make. And secondly, if... I mean, I'm looking at you. I know what the color of your skin is. Yeah, right. I have, you know, I compute it. First in my class at the Harvard Law School, and went to New York and went to Philadelphia. Nobody would hire me. Yeah. What What year was this? Well, this was 1948. And do you think that would happen today? Yes. No. No. Not quite as much. But there are a lot of times where they would not hire a person because of the color of their skin, even though it may turn out they may be better. Well, wait a minute. First of all, law firms today are are desperate to hire minority uh, lawyers because there aren't enough of them, and they feel compelled under ABA rules to be much more representative, yet there is a paucity of lawyers to hire from. Martin at O'Melveny Myers, we've yeah. got over 1,100 lawyers, and I don't think we make our decisions that way. Well, oh, they, really? that's not what you read in the National Law Journal, Legal Times, and so forth. 
defined differently. I mean, if a young lady... Now, wait a minute. What are you saying happens at your law firm today? Today, we try to get the best talent, and we do not particularly pay much attention to whether what the color of their skin is. You said much attention. Are, I mean, are, are you really saying that at a, at a big law firm today, uh, a thumb is not put on the scale in favor of some groups because of skin color or gender? Well, to the best of our ability, it's not. Now, I'm not saying that whenever you make decisions or who you pick to marry may not be upon some other facts, but to the best of our ability, we try very much to get the best person. Well, isn't that a good thing? Yes, but that doesn't mean that all over this country that same thing has happened. No, of course. It doesn't mean that you, if you spent, uh, born in 1920, if you spent most of the time where there were segregated schools in the north or there were segregated housing properties because that great liberal Franklin Roosevelt did that, that that has an effect the life of a person thereafter. And also, you know, you talk about... Yeah, but what do you do with that information? Okay, somebody had, grew up in the south side of Chicago in a segregated housing project. Uh, X years later, he's graduating from Harvard Law School and he's in the... T- you know, top quarter of his class. What is the relevance there of that information about his origin? Well, if he or she is among the 15 best people to show up that year at Old Melvity, I hope they hire him, him or her. But the fact is, I just don't think you can say in life, well, take marriage. I am pretty sure when some of us of color would go to a, a house where the girl was white, the parents have a different reaction than if the same type of guy with the same type of ability goes there and he happens, he also has to be white. I just think you're living in a dream world. I'm not saying this country hasn't changed greatly. I, 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 for example, I can't imagine why you haven't talked more about the New Haven case. Because in any case, it demonstrates that at least that court five to four felt that if you had a fair exam and it turned out that the first black person was 27, that you should not, on that basis, not hire the white people that done better. And I think everybody wants to do that. But, you know, I grew up uh, in a different world, and I can't, you know, when I was Harvard Law School, I'd go down to be in the military. The first command I ever got from Biloxi was, hey, nigga, where you going? I then kept on walking, and the sergeant said, hey, boy, and unfortunately I settled for that. But I'm really, I mean, you know, I'm not saying that this country isn't great and great improvement, but I don't think that as a scholar you can say we've reached the point where in we make decisions, we always have to assume what color is irrelevant. I didn't say that. I didn't say that. I don't think that at all. Yeah, really. I mean, how many times do we have to say that that's not what we're saying? But, 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 you, <laughs> but, but in fact, you're trying to get some excuse to prevent the complete cleanup of a society of what it should be. No. 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 We're no. just saying that it's a bad idea to stamp out the remaining racial discrimination through racial discrimination. That is a bad tool to use. Was, was there racial discrimination in the New Haven case? Yeah. What? Well, they decided to throw out the results of the test because the but people who passed it were the wrong sprint, before, skin color. Okay. And one of the women that voted the other way, you guys are going to put on the Supreme Court. I'm not going to put it on the Supreme Court. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now that we've settled these issues, 
Let's uh, all break for lunch. The book is available outside. It is a wonderful book, uh, and do uh, avail yourself of it. Thank you. Roger, thank you so much for having this.